Hey everybody, this is Being Brave with Amy Bernier, and today we have Amy Hallberg on. Yay! Round of applause. I'm so happy to have you on today. Now, remember, the Being Brave podcast is all about people sharing their stories. And the intention behind this is when people share their stories of being brave, we can connect more fully to one another. I, in my imagination, you know, see people listening to this, people watching this, and really getting a sense of, oh my gosh, I'm not alone, or oh my gosh, I've felt that way before, oh my gosh, like, wow, what an amazing insight. So this podcast is really for, well, P.S., for me to have a really great time talking to amazing humans, because I just love that so, so much, and for you to listen in and realize that we have so much more in common than we than you really, really think, and that when you think that you're alone, you really, really aren't. So, with that in mind, Amy, would you mind introducing yourself and really start and really dive into um, telling us about a time that you have been brave? Okay. I'm going to tell you about two times. Okay. Two times, three, three times, times what I've been as brave. many times as we can fit in in an hour. Sounds amazing. <laughs> so my name is Amy Hallberg, and when I was 17 years old, I was an exchange student in West Germany. And I went to Berlin, and I went to the Berlin Wall, and... My bus left me there. The tour bus drove off while I was shopping for trinkets on the west side of the wall. Oh, my gosh. And now, I for, had those, to, for those people that don't know, in the time that you went to the Berlin Wall, what, how, what was the meaning of it? What was it separating? Let's give people just a tad bit of a history lesson because not everybody grew up around the time that we did and like may not have a clear understanding of the significance of the Berlin Wall. Okay, so when I was growing up, it was the Cold War, you remember this, and we were very, very fixated on the fact that Russia was our enemy, mm -hmm. and there was a whole group of people in Germany. Germany was divided, and there were people, the Berlin Wall was put up to keep people contained in their country because people were trying to leave East Germany to come to West Germany. And the reason that, that, that they were leaving was because they had no freedom to express themselves. They had no freedom to be themselves. They were, their roles were imposed upon them and they were to toe the line and they were to subjugate themselves in all ways to this state. And so growing up in America, you know, we, of course, had absolute freedom and nobody could tell us what to do and etc. And so the day that I got left at the Berlin Wall on the west side, and it's all painted and it's all, you know, it's, it's got um, murals all over it and, and all this graffiti protest. And I was scared to death and I was so mad at my group for not noticing that I was, wasn't there. They left me and I'm stuck there and I found my way back to the to like, I, I wandered the streets by myself with one other friend who was equally clueless. We didn't speak German. And we, we found our way back to somehow we found like a train station and we hopped on the train and we went back and we found our group and like they were getting off the bus and we were like, dudes, you forgot us. Like, you know, and uh, so I was like, okay. 
I can do this. I can do this. And that was probably the first time I ever had to find my way home. And I was in another country and it was really scary. And later that week, I went to East Berlin. And it looked exactly like West Berlin, except grayer. Like all the buildings looked the same, but it was grayer. And instead of having the flags, the, the West German flags, they had the East German flags. They looked exactly the same, except they had this sort of like, like worker and farmer state symbol in the middle, you know. And, mm -hmm. and um, it was a fascinating experience for me because they were two parallel worlds mm -hmm. that were so similar. But on the West, there was all this freedom to, to, to explore and to see what you wanted to do. And in the East, I had this feeling all day of, don't screw this up. Don't say the wrong thing. Don't do the wrong thing. And while I was going over there, in fact, one of my friends, we tried taking pictures in the train station and they saw my flash and took one of my friends away and like questioned her in a room. And like, we're like, Oh my gosh, like, like, is my friend even going to be okay? So it was this really, really scary experience of like, nobody did anything to me that day. Like nothing bad happened to me, but the, but the pressure, the headache, the, 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 the feeling of being trapped that I had that one day was really revelatory to me. Mm. You know, earlier in the week I thought, oh, I'm lost. What will I do? And then I used my little mind and I used my little heart and I found my way back home. I knew how I was going to get out of the East because I had my visa and I just get on the train at the end of the day and go back to the West. But that sense of oppression, and I was only there for one day, but my migraine that I had and just the weight, it was such a weighty experience. Mm. And I went, I took that home with me, that experience. And um, while I was in Germany, Ronald Reagan even gave that famous speech. He gave his famous speech, you know, Mr. Gorbachev, the wall must go. And, um, and I went back to Prior Lake, where I, where I live, and I gave a graduation speech. And I gave a graduation speech about the wall must go and how we in America, you know, we think we know what freedom is, but we don't because we've never stood in that place and, and, and known what it is to have that sense of, of not being able to express yourself, not being able to be free, not being able to be fully yourself. Mm -hmm. And I made this proclamation at my high school graduation that we had to tear down those walls in our lives. Anything that confined us, anything that made us less than who we were, we had to tear down those walls in our lives. Ta-da! Wow. <laughs> that is amazing. That is amazing. So many things come up for me when you, through this, throughout this whole story where, you know, I remember when there was East Germany and West Germany, and I remember when the wall came down and how big of a deal it was, and, you know, really understanding like, or like learning just through, through experiencing television and the media and the news at that time, you know, like, oh, what life could be like, you know, without any freedom and how like this one wall, like just, you know, in my head, I'm thinking it's just a wall. But it's so much more than that. It it like, ah. and my grandmother's from from Germany too. She she grew up there and was there during World War Two. So there was that too. Um, she never really said anything, but was very emotional 
about the whole experience. Um, and but I, we internalize it, right? I'm guessing she internalized a lot of that, that fear, that control, that. Oh, I don't, you know, I don't even know. Like, it's so interesting. Both my, both my grandparents had experience in World War II. My grandmother as, you know, as a, a German citizen, you know, working for the, the United States government, which is how she met my grandfather in the first place. And my grandfather working for the United States government. And that's how he met my grandmother. My grandmother was his <laughs> he always tells was about about how um you know that he had to propose like a bunch of times before she'd say yes like i remember specifically talking about her not saying yes right away um but anyway just about you know not having that embodied like firsthand experience but the, but having history be made, you know, across an ocean, um, being in, I think middle school when it happened, I don't, I don't remember specifically, um, like how, how old I was, but I also like, am like amazed by your ability as a young person to really make that connection about how the fist, like how it felt, mm. you know, how it felt. And actually, you know what? I'm, I'm amazed and I'm remembering now when I was also in high school, I went on a choir trip and we toured, you know, Germany and Switzerland and Austria and like all these different places. And I do remember us going and touring a concentration camp. And so I'm going to revoke my, my, my statement about not knowing that kind of feeling while I remember having a distinct feeling of, like that gray that you're talking about, that heaviness when we went through a concentration camp. It wasn't just the knowledge, the knowing, the intellectual acknowledgement that, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of people were murdered here, but right. also that palpable sensation as, as if like the, as if like the world had less color here. Yes, yes, and do you know that children, when children go through trauma and they put, you know, like they, they start to help them heal and they give them, you know, paper and ask them to draw, they don't draw in color. They will literally, traumatized children will draw in black and white. And it takes a while for that color to come back into their world. It's actually a sign of healing for them. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, and, you know what, and color's how I access, I mean, it sounds a little bit extreme, but that's how I access God. That's how I access the divine is through color. Really. Like that's, that's the expression of divinity for me. Right. And so not to have color is almost disconnection from source, disconnection from spirit, disconnection from your soul. That's how I experience that. You know, that's amazing. I mean, God, I have like so many different thoughts going through my head right now. It's like I'm reflecting upon my own childhood experience of the use of color and expression and freedom of expression. Um, and also I want to touch on the fact that you made as a young person, I think, I think sometimes like we're so much more perceptive than we think we are. And as mm -hmm. our like adult brains look back and it's, I'm like, I'm thinking, Oh wow, that's such a big connection. And at the same time I'm thinking, no, but we're so much more open when we're younger, like that, that experience of, of really being able to connect to, you know, we need to take down our own walls, like with in ourselves and between each other. Like to me, I mean, 
that kind of message to kids, like imagine, and you know, I'm thinking about my, so it's just so everybody knows, Amy is, is also a former teacher. So every conversation that we have, like on so many levels, I find we both get insights into ourselves and into our, our former teaching experiences. So I'm also thinking back about, you know, how, how open and really how genius and how, you know, feelings and, and, and creative and perceptive kids are that I think we actually forget the how perceptive and how sensitive and how creative we were then because we've had like decades in my case between then and now and we forget and well, I but there's like also remembering this. now <laughs> as you're but speaking. there's also this Amy so when I was in that experience the time when I got left at the wall and the time that I was on the east side of the wall. And, and to be clear, the people in the east side were trying to get into the wall. You know, they weren't, like East Germans were trying to get in. They weren't trying to get out. They were trying to get in. I just think that's an interesting distinction. Tell me more about that, the East oh. Germans. So we think of East Germans as trying to escape, right? Escape to West Germany. Escape to West Germany. Mm -hmm. But what they were actually doing, the, the, the border was around west berlin so people were actually trying to get into the wall not out of the wall isn't that interesting oh yes it is um what i what i realized so i started writing a book about this experience but it took me i mean i i quickly was it was so easy to dissuade me i i turned out i was not a good writer and i could never write a book and i just wouldn't you know like and i just gave it up says the published author. Right. <laughs> and what really happens is I felt all those feelings, but I felt so much shame and anxiety. And I made all those bad feelings about me personally. Like I didn't know how I didn't have the, the, the tools to process all those feelings at the time. Mm -hmm. So the fact that it was really intense and, and emotional, I took that as a judgment on myself as a team oh, so wow. I felt it I just didn't didn't know what to do with it well I think that's so important for us all to acknowledge right is that when we have these these big these big emotional experiences whether it's trauma or just realizations or and it feels really really big I don't know about you but I instantly and I recently had a really really emotional experience so I'm reflecting on like a couple of days ago where I like lost my shit you know and we all do by the way <laughs> so thank you thank you I'm not alone in my ugly crying experience um is the, what I find is the first thing that happens to me is my brain wants to try to explain it understand it and figure out something to do next and what I've learned over time is that my brain wants to make me feel better it doesn't want me to feel bad anymore and it wants to find any way to stop this out of control emotional experience that I'm having and there is nothing to do like the the thinking and the figuring and like all that stuff that my brain specifically loves 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 to do it's mm -hmm. 
that isn't the thing to do when you're having these emotional experiences that literally your brain can't process. You just right. have to, you, what ends up happening is our bodies are these amazing things, at least my experience, where my body will let me process what I can at the moment. And then may, and then I'll be able to like live my life a little bit. And then, oh, there'll be a memory and then more emotional stuff comes up. And then it's like, I always have this irrational fear that like once I start having all of these emotions around these, they'll never end. "Ah, It's forever. (laughs) And what I would like to acknowledge is that the brain wants to fix it. There's nothing to be fixed. And the body and the, you know, your spirit won't, won't give you anything that you can ha- can't handle. And at the time you might think I can't handle this, ah, ah, ah. but it's not, it's not true. It's really yeah. not true. So for all of you guys out there that are like, I just want to fix myself when I get emotional because that's what my brain totally wants to do. Oh yeah. Guess, guess what? You have to actually feel the feelings. <laughs> one Sorry. of the lessons, one of the huge <laughs> blessings of writing. So writing will bring that stuff up and it's there. It's there anyway, so you might as well, you know, it's there. Um, I, had, I had the honor of working with some really amazing published writer, teachers, when I started working on my writing, because I would do these very carefully scripted stories that kept all the emotion out, or, you know, like it's packaged up and all the meaning is very carefully curated to keep me from feeling all those bad feelings that people are like, what about this here? And I'd be like, well, we, we're not talking about that. That's painful, right? Like, you know, when I started you writing- it through so well. Oh my gosh. Everything you know, makes like, so much sense. I'm writing this uh-huh. book about Germany, but I'm not talking about Holocaust. Are you kidding me? That's painful, right? right. Like, I'm not going to do it. Right. And people kept going, yeah, but what about, no, there's, we're not mentioning Nazis. You know, like, no, nah, we're just going to keep it like nicely contained. Right. Right. It's there anyway. It's yeah. there anyway. And I had this, one of my teachers- Mary Carol Moore always said, breakdown precedes breakthrough. And I love that because then when I get that really edgy feeling, not only do I know that, okay, it's just shit that's coming up to be healed, but also on the other side of it, there's going to be some fabulous, fabulous turnaround in my story. And it's going to be, you know, and those are the stories people want to read. You know, you don't have to explain everything for them because they're just like, whoa, that thing happened. And it's just real life. I'm just telling my real life stories. Yes. And I get out of my way. And the stories do all the work for me because I'm not attached to where they go. Right. I love so much what you just said, because while you focus on writing and help other people write their stories and all that stuff, I feel like there's a, there's a really great, like interesting parallel that you and I have because I'm having people come on and tell their stories. Mm-hmm. And just like you said, like, there is no, like, before we get on the call, I'm kind of like, oh, well, these are maybe kind of the questions that I'm going to ask, but like, let's see where the conversation goes, because whatever comes up around the story, like, that is, that is what will help people, will serve people, will, you know, um, will, will help us, you know, it's all of this magic that's coming through, and there is no, there is no it first. It has to be, you have to say it this way and then you have to say it this way. And then like all these rules that I so, so loved when I was teaching, but at, at the same time really hated, thrown out the window. <laughs> like, oh, it's so funny you say that too, Amy, because <laughs> the, the whole point about East Germany that was so oppressive to me was that it was all very scripted, right? You had to know the right thing to say. And um, when I, when I, 
when I grew up and got my sensible job, I became a German teacher. Instead of writing that book, I became a German teacher and I loved my job. I mean, you and I have talked about this. I loved teaching. It was my dream job. And for a long time, I would tell kids, this is my dream job. But I think the danger of, of, of realizing your dreams is that, you know, I used to tell people that the reward for a job well done is expectation that you'll do the same thing. Like you'll just keep doing it and you can almost oh. become wrapped in former dreams. Right. You, you see what I'm saying? Like this yeah, like was my dream and now it must be my dream forevermore. Happily ever after the end. Oh yeah. Like it's like when you, like I've done this in my business in the yeah. past, like yeah. I've come upon a, uh, you know, an idea that uh, really works and people respond to it. And then I create a program around it. And then I have people in it and like the program is really, really great. And I love it and all this stuff. And so much things, so many great things are happening. I'm making money. People are learning. They're making money, etc. And then I've noticed that I have this expectation. Okay. Now, because I saw it work a couple of times the same way, over and over and over again. Then I all of a sudden think, this is the program. This is the program that I'm gonna be doing for the rest of my life. This is right. the program that I'm gonna be offering. And I and I put my identity into this program that I've created that worked a bunch of times and helped. But what happens is I just right. trap myself. I just create, I just right. put myself in a little box. And right. I don't like rules is what's a huge thing that I've learned over like the past yeah. 20 years maybe yeah. I'm finally at a point where I'm like oh shit now I don't like rules but I really my brain really tries to figure out the rules like all the time every day so I have to be super aware like oh wait did I just put a rule and then an expectation on like oh because this podcast went this way it's gonna have to go this way every Work single time up. someone comes on like Yes. Ooh. I've done yes. that so many times. It's almost um, laughable. Well, and it's human nature. You know, actually, Albert Einstein was cutting edge at the beginning of his career, but at the end of his career, he missed some of the, the insights because he was trapped in his mindset. Because, you know, suddenly he's Albert Einstein. You know, we all become, right. we all become right. uh, susceptible to our past versions of ourselves if we don't let ourselves evolve. So what ended up happening was my German program some people came into the school district, which shall remain nameless. Of course. We <laughs> could just say it's, it's all public schools. It doesn't well, have to be with, They were be. men who never taught before. They were men who hadn't taught before, who wanted to make their mark on the world, and came in and decided that Germany was no longer relevant in the world. And so they came in. They didn't meet me and they came in gunning for my program and, you know, like I'd advocate for my program and they'd be like, you know, you're biased. And, you know, honestly, looking back, it was patriarchy coming in in a way that I hadn't experienced throughout my entire career because I'd had all these incredible mentors who were like, no, we believe in you. And, you know, German is a niche, but as long as students come and you're growing, you will always have a home here. And what ended up happening is that they played teachers against each other and they splintered us and you know okay I know I'm speaking hyperbole but it didn't feel that different from East Germany to me we were being played against each other there were backroom meetings happening and then I'd find things out and you know it was everybody for themselves market share and like and they had me teaching two levels of German 40 kids in a classroom all day long and then during my prep driving to the next 2.6 miles 
in that direction and doing it again. So I never had any time to think or breathe or anything. So they took this thing that was a joyful experience for me and it became a nightmare. It became Can I an- ask a question real quick? Yeah, yeah. So was this around um, No Child Left Behind time? Oh, it was probably related to No Child Left Behind. It was rec- it's, it's related to testing. It's related to all these ways that we're going to script up the teachers and make sure that they don't mess up the kids. And, it, and, and what, what No Child Left Behind does is every child left behind because we're standardizing people. One of my coworkers said it's also No Parent Left Responsible. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> he called it in a faculty meeting. Oh, my God. <laughs> he's like are we going to talk about no parent left responsible now and I'm like oh my god like I was like I was in my lower 20s and oh. my mid-20s when no child left behind was enacted and just for people that don't know it what happened really was everything it turned into what so my experience when I first started teaching was you know I I was respected as a professional educated professional who was always learning always doing what was best for my students like the assumption was I was doing my job doing it well and yes we had evaluations and all of that stuff and you know shit ton of work and we're always working and collaborating together etc cetera, etc cetera. <clears throat> but what started to happen was And I was, when I first started teaching, I was certified to teach first through eighth grade. So when I was, you know, fresh out of college, I actually taught middle school. And so, you know, the advantage of of having that certification in middle school for my bosses was that they could shift me around to teach different subjects based upon my very well-roundedness. Now, they wouldn't put me in a math teaching job or probably not a science teaching job because there can be a lot of very specific you know, um, content knowledge around that, but like social studies and reading and those and English, those are the subjects that I got shifted around. Well, when No Child Left Behind was enacted, they said, you know, you need to be a, a specialist in whatever you're teaching. And so all of a sudden I was told, if you're going to teach social studies, you know, you're going to need to go and get a specialist, separate specialist certificate slash degree slash take a test in order to teach social studies. So all of a sudden, like this flexibility that I had in middle school was taken away. And in fact, if I wasn't, there were things in place that set would say, you know, send letters out to parents that I wasn't highly qualified. That's the phrase I hate, I hate so much that I wasn't highly qualified to teach this, but then they would give all of my, you know, all of my, uh, my degrees and things like that as backup. But also like, it was this, it was as if they were, I felt like they were saying like, if you weren't a specialist, then you weren't, you weren't qualified. Well, to when that. did the education system become about whether the teachers were good enough or that we have to be perfect all the time or that there's any experience of learning? It's all about grading and the grades don't correlate to what people can actually do or how it translates into the world. So it's this, you know, we're counting, we're just counting numbers and all this, we're counting all this data that doesn't relate to real people are suffering. And I remember telling an admin <laughs> that, um, you know, it wasn't in the best interest of the student that I was basically being driven crazy by, I was so stretched so thin. The, the schedule yeah, that they- The dynamic, <laughs> I just yeah. want to say this one thing, the dynamic turned from, we trust you as a professional to teach what you're going right. to teach and to, you know, 
the kids will learn what they're going to learn and they'll have a test. You, you know, you'll create the test that they'll take in order to right. see that they've moved through because you know, the kids to this, this putting people on the defensive, like you have to prove that you like the feeling, the feeling that I had when I was going to school or going to my job as a teacher, you know, so going to school as a teacher. Oh my phone ringing. Just a second. Okay. It'll go to voicemail. Decline. Okay. So it turned into this, you have to prove yourself. And we're making the assumption that if we're not monitoring and measuring every single thing that you're doing, then you're trying to get away with something. It, it really turned from this trust to this mistrust yeah. in a very systematic way. And, um, well, and in my case, they didn't, the people who are evaluating me did not speak German, did mm -hmm. not speak Spanish, didn't know any language but English, but they're the ones who are making all these decisions. And when I try and say, mm -hmm. you know, I have experience in this, if you're going to make some changes, can I be part of this? And, and the response was, you're biased. You know, I was suspect. And, and the other thing that, was, that somebody said to me that just, it blew my mind is I said, this is not, this is not okay for me. And they said, it's not really about what's best for you. It's about what's best for the kids. Mm -hmm. I don't understand how you think it's in the best interest of the kids that you're sending in a teacher that's at her breaking point and everybody knows it. Mm -hmm. So it was, it was, and then there's this humiliation again, the feelings, the discomfort of it, mm -hmm. of this must make me a bad person that I'm somehow not superhuman. Oh, right. like, totally. Like, I'm a bad person because I'm not dying in a situation that would kill a lot of people. There's, but I'm a bad person, right? Like, right. There's uh, so many, so many situations where like the, the compassion, the empathy and the service orientedness of being a teacher was wielded as a weapon against us. And mm -hmm. I remember very much people saying, you know, systematically saying, well, do it for the kids. Well, the, the problem is, you know, not like there were, for me at least, in my numerous experiences at different schools in different states and all that kind of stuff was that there were like, there were faux, faux steps out there that said we care about the wellness of our teachers, but it wasn't, there was no real, it was all like, it was all political. It was all surface. Mm -hmm. And the, the do it for the kids Mm -hmm. weapon phrase, you know, was constantly used to emotionally manipulate teachers into doing more. Like the truth is like, for those of you who have never been an educator, don't have a family member or a friend that is an educator, like the job is never done. Like they're always asking more and more and more and more and more. So like, unless you're like, and I learned this towards the end of my career mm -hmm. that I had to actually say in my own head, this is where I have to draw the line today. I have to make sure that I eat healthy food. I need to make sure that I drink enough water. I need to make sure that I go to the gym. I need to make sure that I have a life because if I'm just a teaching machine and that all I do is go home and grade papers and drink wine and like fall asleep or whatever. <laughs> Such a life. <laughs> which is the case for a lot of people. We're um, like, blowing, I'm like blowing the lid off of a lot of um, things. <laughs> but like be like the learning like the boundary where I okay so this is what I can do f in order to set myself up for tomorrow or the day after or the day after but like needing to know like where your ener own energy level 
ends and what you need to do to refill your cup is like so important. And oftentimes you're doing it, you're drawing the line and it means that you're not going to get something done that someone thinks is really fucking important. What happened in my- You are the most important thing. (laughs) What happened actually- uh, ironically, I suppose, is that when my job got so ridiculous that there was no humanly possible way to do all the things, like it was so, oh, yeah. ridiculous. I mean, and I would tell real people and they'd be like, you have real to tell people. them that they'd be like, you can't do that. You have to go tell those guys that, that they can't do that to you. You're when a you tired, you you're real, like real people. Are you talking about, are the real people the non-educators? Yeah. Okay. I love that you said real people. They'd be like, you can, well, I guess I'm talking as opposed to admin who tried to like plug us oh, in, okay. right? <laughs> you have to tell those admin, they can't do that to you. Oh, good. Good. Right. I, yeah. I haven't thought of that. Is my job got yeah. so ridiculous that I literally knew that they will take every second that I have free. And so I started doing things like I started going to yoga class. I joined the church choir. and. I, I was taking violin lessons and um, I started writing this book. I had no time for any of this stuff, but it was like, if they're going to destroy my whole life, the part of it that they have, I'm going to push back by creating this huge circle of time where I'm so busy. I can't do the schoolwork. So I push back at it because You're taking care of yourself. Isn't yes. that ironic? Push yes. back equals self care. Yes. Like, but I couldn't just sit still. I had to be doing something. Like even yoga, you're doing something because you're in the class. <laughs> right. Well, I'm curious. So this is clearly like there's a there's a buildup. There's a breakdown on the horizon. You know, oh, yeah. you've you've been asked to do more and more and more and more and more. And your time hasn't, and your humanness and your time hasn't been hasn't been acknowledged or respected consistently over time. And I know that it gets worse and worse and worse. So I want you to jump to the part where, okay, like you realize like you can't, you actually can't do this anymore because it really isn't getting better. And I'm curious as to what you were feeling, kind of things that were happening, how it was impacting your life as a human being, not just as a, as a classroom teacher in the classroom, but as a classroom teacher, in that that's also a human being with a life right you know yeah because i have little kids i have a husband yeah could you can you speak to that because i think that a lot of us you know commit to a job that we love um or maybe even a job that we don't love but we Mm -hmm. see we don't see, and this happened to me too, is it's you've committed to it you're you're doing it it's what you're showing up for every day and even though excuse me even though like quote unquote bad shit is happening, you've already, you've still committed to it. It's right. still, like for me, teaching was so much a part of my identity. So it was yes. like, I just kept going back and going yes. back and going back. And so often I thought, well, I have to change my mindset. I, yes. I really internalized a lot of these, you know, people coming into my classroom and saying, you're a shitty teacher. You need to change these things. And I would go, it was like, I was like, Oh my God, I am. Oh my, even though I'm working my fucking ass yes. off, in the classroom, outside of the classroom, not getting enough sleep, like basically destroying my own life outside, trying to meet the needs of these people that are telling me that I'm not doing a good job. And like, I, I, I just got to the point where like my body started to break down. And yes, that, that was the thing for mm-hmm. me that like made me 
like, and I even pushed through the body stuff. I didn't yep. barely walk and I was still showing up to work. I yep. was like driving to work screaming because I was in so much pain. I just turned uh-huh. up all the radio. I rolled down the windows and I'm like, this is the only way I could, I could, I could. And the only really time that I could actually be in as much pain as, as I was. And I had to like, I screamed bloody murder fucking 30 minutes. Like, right. because I, it hurt so much to sit. And I really want people to know that, you know, we hear you, we see you, we understand you. Like we, Amy and I like understand that, you know, you feel like there's only one way. The feeling is I'm in this situation. This is my life and it's going down the tubes and not for once that I think I have to, maybe this isn't the job for me. Maybe this isn't what I was supposed to do because when I was in my early twenties, I knew I wanted to be a teacher. I finally knew what I wanted to do. And in my head, I had committed to it till till retirement. Yes. So, I mean, I went to Germany. I was taking, you know, like I took my kids and my husband to Germany and I'm bringing these other people's children to Germany. I'm taking my summer and I go to Friedrich Schiller's house. Now, Friedrich Schiller is one of my heroes, but he's the guy who wrote music to the Ode to Joy, right? So, you know, the Freude that song, right? He wrote the text, right? I sang that in college. Everybody, my, it's a great song, right? I mean, we're, we're all still singing it. So I went, um, I just, I was in Germany and I'm bringing these kids and it's really hard. I've done it before and I loved it, but it's just, it's hard. Like, I feel like every, I feel like I'm going through the motions of stuff that I used to love to do. Mm. And now I'm this cheerless, joyless person who feels like a martyr. Mm-hmm. And um, the teacher that we were staying with was like, you know what? take your husband and your kiddos and go on a road trip. And she made us go to Weimar, which I'd never been to before. And I want you to go see Goethe's house. Goethe, he's the German poet that everybody knows. And um, they quote him a lot. G-O-E-T-H-E, Goethe. That's how people know him. But Goethe, Fried, uh, Johann Wolfgang von Goethe and Friedrich Schiller. So they're like my, my heroes. I've taught their poetry for years. And I go see their houses. And when I go to Friedrich Schiller's house and I start reading sort of stuff on the wall, I realize that he died at 45, right? And, and he had basically left home and he was a refugee. And he, like they said, you can't write where he was from. And so he left home at 20 and moved to Weimar and started his whole life over. And between 20 and 45 became this great poet who had a really hard life, but he was a poet and he was a writer and he was doing the things he loved. And I was at that point 41 and I wasn't doing any of the things I loved. I wanted to be a, a, an author. I wanted to write. I wanted to love German again. I wanted to raise my children and love my children. I wanted to feel like this family that I'd always wanted was more important than everybody else's kids and what they wanted. I really felt like I was squandering everything for myself. So just being in that home and realizing he's dead, like he died, like at 45 and I'm 41 and I don't know how I'm going to get out and it would take me. So that was, that was in 2011. It would take me until 2016 to get out. 
it would take, I mean, so I, I surrendered my German program, let them give it to somebody else who was less qualified by a long shot, you know, who'd been gunning, gunning for my job forever because we were in competition. And I let them put me into Spanish one and I taught Spanish one because I thought that would be the solution. And in Spanish one, they scripted me up. They would never let me teach anything beyond Spanish two, no matter how hard I worked. And I, you know, it was the safe job and my body just started going to hell. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was having nosebleeds, my shoulder froze up, my leg froze up. Mm-hmm. Everybody who knew me knew I was not okay. And I couldn't find the next, it was like a chess game. Mm-hmm. I couldn't find the next position in the district that I could do to keep my tenured job and my health insurance and my retirement funds. And you know, I was going to have to spend some of my savings, but on the other hand, I would have been dead and I wouldn't have gotten the retirement. So it was that extreme. I mean, I had parents coming after me. I had, it, it was just one day I just, I, I said, I quit. I literally, I called up my mom on the way home from work and I said, I need to be done. I'm quitting at semester. And she said, why don't you? And I was like, it's that easy. Exactly. Yes. And the crazy thing about it, the crazy thing about it, Amy, is so I decided this in, I will say, early November. And um, and I had to keep going until January, end of semester, because I, you know, they, they needed time to get another teacher in there. And for um, you. I couldn't even do that. Well, I needed to somehow save face. And I judged, I judged the shit out of myself because once I realized I couldn't right. do it anymore, I literally couldn't. Right. I could not. Um, right. And I, I want to just point out that, you know, we can have these realizations like you did at Goethe's house, if I said that correctly. Yeah, Goethe and Schiller's house. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. In Weimar. And I feel like what part of what you experienced was a reminder of your mortality and yes. the opportunity to say, to reflect and say, is this really how I want my life to go? And I think it's super, super interesting because I feel like realizations like that are like, they're super, super emotional. Mm -hmm. And it's just like we were talking about how our brain wants to come in and fix it when we're having this emotional experience. I feel like, you know, you can realize something that's that's not, realize that something isn't good for you. And you can still go back into it just like you did and still convince yourself that there's, there's an exit. There's, a, there's, there's another an exit. way. Yes. Like yes. there's another way. There's another position. Yes. I'm willing to give up German. Maybe it's Spanish and being open to, to believing that yes. like it can, if I just try hard enough, I'll be yes. back on top soon. It'll oh, be man. soon. Someday I'll be okay. Yeah. And I think it's really important for, I'm so glad that you shared that, you know, you said I had this realization and it still took me blah, blah, blah amount of years and experiences. And I think that like, it's important to share this story because it's important to know that you can know something and still be so terrified and not know. And what I found in my experience is, and I'm trying to get better at the turnaround time, right? Yes. Something and then taking action, even if I don't know what, what's happening after, because what I find is when you really, really realize something. Yes. 
shit's not going to get better. It's actually going to get way worse. And if you're like me and clearly like Amy, you know, if your tolerance for suffering is really, really high and you were constantly thinking, I just, I need to fix this by working harder. Like that is so, has been so much. I just find that magic bullet, right? My God. Like if you're sitting here and you're hearing this and you're like, and you're, and you're thinking to yourself, Oh my God, I do that too. Like guys, like, newsflash like both Amy and I have to have to learn this fucking hard way and that's why we're here sharing story is like it's not supposed to be torture your life is not supposed to be suffering like there is a way and you just don't know what it is yet you know and that's the scary part is we feel like the unknown is like if you know is like we're standing on the edge of the cliff and the unknown is that space and we're going to be pushed off like I like to say like what if the unknown, because, you know, our nervous system responds, like we're getting pushed off the edge of a cliff. Like yes. our, all of a sudden our adrenaline is pumping and we're thinking in survival mode and we're just going to claw ourselves. We're going to hold on to that cliff because the cliff is life is the cliff is safety. Yes. And that's like staying in the job for months and years and, you know, trying to get no I was doing tapping EFT tapping it's a way of releasing anxiety I was doing EFT tapping like you said in the car every morning before I get to school I had to talk myself into that building Mm -hmm. every day and um you know I mean I was doing the right things I had coaches who were like no Amy you're actually doing good things for kids keep going so I didn't even have it like like I was Oh yeah. It doesn't mean that you're not doing, like you could still be doing a great job, but if you're, and if your body starts breaking down and your emotions, like our emotions and our bodies are telling us, they're giving us messages. And oftentimes we're not listening to them because, well, I'm a teacher and I'm going to be teaching right. until I retire. Like we're right. so attached to that. Right. And like, I'm saying this and you know, I actually feel my body having a response to having conversation about teaching. <laughs> right now because it's like a little bit shaky in there because it's like I'm remembering what it felt like in my body is remembering that anxiety and that and I feel like it's not just about teaching like I've talked to so 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 many people in corporate and you know in like all different kinds of professions and I find that like when we try to be like everybody else when we try Mm -hmm. to fit ourselves in a box that isn't ours. Like we're actually forgetting. And a lot of us have never been taught that like to be like everyone, we're not supposed to be like everybody. No. If actually, we were, we'd be born that way. Right. Our genius lies in our, mm-hmm. you know, quote unquote imperfections, our quote unquote idiosyncrasies and our quirkiness and our weirdness and our, you know, crazy yes. creativeness. Like, and we're told that those things and exploring those things, it's that it's weird, that it's bad, that it's, that it's not safe. And well, you'll never make money doing that or whatever. So we attach ourselves to these jobs that make us be like other people. And we believe that if like that, it's safe to be like other people. Well, safe to follow the the systems aren't set up to serve people. The mm-hmm. systems, the people serve the systems. That's mm-hmm. where it's wrong. It's not about what's best for people in these systems. They, you can say it and you can rest on these moral things, but when you in actuality are practicing that people don't have space to breathe mm-hmm. because they have to cram all this stuff in, mm-hmm. it doesn't work. And what was amazing <clears throat> when, I, when I did give myself permission to quit and I started slowly 
telling people that teachers at first kept it from the kids for a good long time Mm -hmm. that I was leaving, but I would tell the kids, you know, I won't always be here for you. I mean, so I, in my way, I did tell them, I said, I won't always be here for you. What are you doing for yourself here? What, what are you getting out of this? And I tried to, to implant that with them. And it was such a beautiful, beautiful ending after a really hard time. And it was like, it was so perfect that sometimes I would have this thought, maybe I don't have to leave because it's so good. And it's almost like instantaneously the universe would be like, hells no, you know, like God crashed my computer. You know, the grade book just fell out. (laughs) But the kids, like the kids who are perfectly fine and good, all of a sudden they just like rebel and like, and have like, you know, this nightmare (laughs) with your dreams, like living it out. But I could tell kids, I could tell kids some pretty blunt things to their face that they just needed to hear. They just needed me to tell them and nothing bad happened. You know, and I would tell people I'm leaving and I, and I said I was leaving to write a book, which is the most ridiculous answer you could tell somebody, but I couldn't think of any other reason to tell them. So I told them I'm leaving to write a book. But it's not ridiculous. Right. It's only ridiculous to where you were at the time. Right. Our, you know, the agreement and the thinking was that I have to be killing myself at a place that has a a system in order to be having I need a tenured, safe, reasonable job. Right. Like everything assured. It wasn't assured. Nothing was sure. It was going to kill me. So writing a book was just seemed insane to where you were then. But it was the only thing I knew what to do. That's amazing. Yeah. So that's what I did. (laughs) I, I quit on Martin Luther King day, Jr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Yeah. Um, which felt very, very freeing to me. And I had lots of people who said, gee, I wish I had enough courage. Me too. I had that experience too. Mm-hmm. So that's that my story. <laughs> that's amazing. And I think, so we have time. I think I have time to ask you two questions. And one yeah. is, you know, so how are you being brave now? Like what did your brave step for leaving your job what did it lead you into mm-hmm. now now ish or then ish kind of more present bravery and activities that you're doing and then the other question is you know out of all this experience out of all the pain of all the emotion of all of the you know tumultuous experiences what's one thing that you desire, like if you could, I like, I love asking this question because I think it's so important, you know, through your being brave experiences, both as a 16 year old, you know, lost and finding her way in (laughs) West Germany and as a German teacher turned Spanish teacher, leaving her job after things getting so, so challenging. What's one message that you feel everybody should know? Well, you know, I still have to screw up my courage. I still have that little linear left brain going, you can't really, this is not a reasonable path what you're doing. Oh, yeah, I have that too. I'm so glad you said that. <laughs> and yet I'm doing it, you know, and, and since the day I left my job, I've, I've eaten every day and I've had a roof over my head every day and I have people who love me who keep going come on, little soldier, this is your job. And when I tried too hard to do stuff afterwards, they say, slow down, little camper. Your job is to feel. Your job is to be yourself. Your job is to figure out what you want. No, 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 really not what that person wants. What do you want? And it all turns out. Nothing is wasted. I wouldn't give up any of that painful experience. It's what I needed. 
to learn. And I still will try to put myself in positions that in my head sound right. And I'll have to back myself back out and go, nope, this is not for me anymore. Yeah. And uh, once upon a time, somebody told me that opportunities would fall into my lap Mm -hmm. and that I should take advantage of them. And I'm not talking about should and things that sound good on paper, but those things that really feel rich and I just, I feel it. And it doesn't have to make any sense at all, but it feels like, ooh, that's something for me. Take advantage of that. You don't know what it's going to turn into, but you don't have to because it all turns out in the end. And I think that, like, the forcing, I think the, the energy that I felt when I was teaching is mm-hmm. a forcing, a forcing energy, a hustle and grind. And interestingly enough, I, when I talk this, about this briefly on other podcast episodes that I accidentally repeated the pattern all over again with oh yeah and turned into this hustle and grinder and rule follower and a plus student learning all the things and doing all this stuff again for like a couple years and I quit my job about three years ago so those patterns that we that we learn about you know I am valuable when I'm working fucking hard or when I'm struggling <laughs> or whatever like also dead but anyway <laughs> also dead um it's, it's all dead you can know it on an intellectual level and then you can start making decisions from that place of you know I don't want to work in this way anymore but yeah. yet I still have to check in with myself like literally if I start hustling and grinding and like getting afraid and trying to say well my business needs to look like this when I start doing that my body will tell me almost instantly mm-hmm. that I need to fucking stop that shit. And it's really been this kind of this ebb and flow of success and challenge. And, you know, there's so much trust and, and, and that's, you know, something I'm working on when you, when you say to yourself, like you just said, the opportunities will come and they will plop themselves down and they will feel amazing. Like this podcast that's exactly what happened with this podcast is, hey, like, we'd really like you to talk about and do the thing that you do for our online radio station. Like, you know, okay. Like, that's, I can literally have conversations with amazing people. Yes. And someone else saw that in me. Because sometimes I found that, like, as much as, you know, I hate to admit it, a lot like, sometimes it takes someone else saying, I see this thing in you. How about this? For right. me to even see that I have it. Because so many of our genius things, like it's just part of who we are. So and you're we still a teacher because you are a teacher <laughs> at your heart. It's at your core. It's not it's not that you quit being a teacher. It's just how does that expand outward to become a fuller expression of who mm-hmm. you are? It's not any different than when you were really feeling good about teaching it's that that was not grown rule and it was time to move on to something else and it's a life practice right like this feels good until it doesn't at which point let it keep evolving 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 we are always becoming and we are all so much more than one thing 
you're so right. And that your comment, you know, this feels good until it doesn't. I don't know how many times that's happened. And sometimes for me, it's just even a little shift to the left or a little shift, you know, it feels like so great in my heart. And then a little tiny disconnect happens. And I remember I started noticing that. And then it was like, if I didn't pay attention to the disconnect, shit hit the fan. Yep. It hit the fan. It didn't matter if I was waitressing, <laughs> if I was, you know, helping people rock their offer or, you know, working with a one-on-one -on -one client. The second that disconnect happened, if I didn't pay attention and it happened to me last week, I didn't pay attention. And then it felt like shit was falling apart. It felt like, and it can feel like, you know, so, uh, losing a client. It can feel like losing a job and it can look like a disaster. But really for me, what I've learned is it's not actually what it appears to be. It's mm. you aren't connected with this anymore. You've evolved past the lesson or the learning or the gift that you were supposed to get with this experience. And you're no longer supposed to stay with it. It's like, okay, well that chapter's over now, but if you don't pay attention, you cling to that chapter. Like I clung to teaching, like Amy clung to teaching, you know, that's just one really large example. It's happened in different iterations of different things in my life, mm -hmm. like relationships, like friendships, like, uh, you know, personal stuff, professional stuff, all that kind of thing. And um, if you don't pay attention, it will, you'll be separated from that thing by one way or another. And, and you also need time to grieve it. You know, it's, it's letting go, but it's also, and there's a time at which you'll be grieving. And there's a time at which you may need to make sense of it and you may need to make sense of it for a while. And it's, it's, it's a process of releasing. It's a practice. And I think it's, you know, I think until I'm dead, I'm going to be releasing some of these things, mm -hmm. you know? And I think that that's the, the beauty of it is that, you know, like you mentioned, your body knows so quickly that you notice faster. It comes up faster. Yes. And it's gone faster. Yes. I think it's Matt Kahn who, who said something. I'm going to probably some, just paraphrase, summarize what he said. He was like, people think that like when you become quote unquote enlightened, the bad shit doesn't happen to you. And he says like, the, that's not true. Bad shit still happens. But like the grieve and recovery process, mm -hmm. instead of like being, you know, months and months and months after I resigned from my teaching job, I could barely do anything, you know, mm. except like go to the gym and like watch TV, make food. And like, I was so judging of myself, but yes. what was happening is just like you said, there was a grieving process, you know, I had been doing this for the majority of my life and yeah. I needed to have that downtime. Now when things happen, it's, you know, I'm, maybe I'll give myself a day or a weekend. Like I gave myself this past weekend after feeling a loss of um, really like the, the way that my business looked. And, mm -hmm. and now it's like, oh, and then the next opportunity came and I'm able to be more emotionally okay with, mm -hmm. the, with the ups and the downs and things. So it does get better. So something that feels like a horrible trauma now and you need to give yourself time and space and all that yes do it give it to yourself yes maybe you won't know how it's all going to unfold but on the other side is you know healthier happier more fulfilling life and it's scary because you don't know what it looks like but it's still there so much better <laughs> than what it was you were doing before yeah yeah 
You looked like you were going to say something. Well, I was thinking that it's, it's paradoxical. I seem more emotional. But what it really is, is that I let myself feel things. I let myself own things. And then I'm past it. So I'm fine now because I'm not frozen. My shoulders aren't frozen. My body's not frozen. If I try to make myself do something, my heart will go boop. And I just don't. But I feel things very fully. Mm -hmm. So it is not that you would meet me and think, wow, she is so cool and calm and collected. You might still right. think that I'm highly sensitive, <laughs> I'm highly emotional. I'm still the same person I was before my life went so crazy, but I'm maybe a richer expression of that. And so it's never going to be that I'm all Zen because I'm not Zen, but it's okay. Right. You're you. Mm. And that's all, you know, you really need to be. And yep. on that note, for everyone listening, all you need to do is be you. And I've been thinking about it, this being brave, just the layers of what, of what it means to be brave is just keep coming and coming and coming to me through different experiences of my own life of being brave, right? Mm -hmm. And listening to people's stories of being brave, you know, it's really being brave is being, is stepping into who you are really. Mm -hmm. not who you think you're supposed to be. Mm -hmm. And on that note, for anybody that is watching this podcast and just really, really resonates and feels good and drawn to Amy and her work and her story, um, she does a lot of amazing things. So mm -hmm. if you're feeling drawn and really, really interested in in what she's saying, that means that you'd like to know more about her. And so I'm going to give her an opportunity to share how you can follow up and connect with her more fully um, if you really had a good, a good feeling um, about everything that she said. I mean, she's amazing. <laughs> Thank you, Amy. You're welcome. Well, my name is Amy Hallberg, and I am the author of German Awakening, Tales from an American Life. And I am, um, I am a master certified life coach now. Um, I am a book whisperer and I call myself courageous wordsmith. So I help other people to live into their stories and excavate their stories first and foremost for them for themselves, but also moving their stories out into the world because I think that our stories really matter. And I think our stories have healing power. And I have my own podcast, Frau Amy's World, Yay. Conversation with Real Life Creat Creatives. And so look for Amy on an episode of my podcast in the very near future. Yay. You can find out all of this on CourageousWordsmith.com or you can join me on my Facebook group. Again, look for CourageousWordsmith.com. So thank you for letting me share a little of that, Amy. <laughs> Absolutely. And we'll make sure to get all of your information and put it along with the podcast when we, when we air it. And so now you have all of Amy's information and you can stalk her on Facebook, on her website and get involved in her Facebook community and listen to her podcast and work with her when you're ready to work with her. Um, she and I have so many similarities and we both believe that stories have the power to change people's lives. So 
my question for you listeners today is what is one being brave action step you can take to be more fully who you are, who you really are, not who someone's telling you to be. And until next time, I see you, I believe in you, and I love you. Bye, guys.